The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse was back in a courtroom last week fighting extradition from Illinois to Wisconsin, where he faces multiple felony charges for the shooting death of two people and the wounding of another. Court TV's Julia Janae will join us with the latest developments. And is this a case prosecutors can even win? Friend of the podcast, Monica Lindstrom, thinks so and will tell us why. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinnie Politan. Welcome to the Court TV Podcast. Thanks so much for downloading and listening. I'm Vinnie Politan, former prosecutor with you, also the host on uh, Court TV's uh, show every night from 8 to 11 on television. So we've been covering a lot of these stories throughout the entire summer. And one of those stories we've been covering is out of Wisconsin. And it started with a police shooting of a man named Jacob Blake. And you may recall this video that was taken by a citizen, Jacob Blake kind of rounding his car, or not his car, his fiance's car, rounding it, or his girlfriend's car, or his ex-girlfriend's car, or the victim of his alleged crime's car. It's not clear, folks. It's not clear. A lot in that case is not clear. Anyhow, as he's walking around that vehicle and trying to get in, he gets shot by police. He does not die. Um, he survives. And he's been charged with the crime, and the investigation into the shooting of Jacob Blake continues. So we're waiting to get some results there on whether or not anything will happen uh, to the officers uh, for shooting Jacob Blake. But in the, in the aftermath of that, there were a, a lot of protests in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And these protests got uh, very dicey, very violent. And at the end of the day, uh, two people died. And a 17-year-old has been charged with their murder. That 17-year-old's name is Kyle Rittenhouse. He was not even from Kenosha, wasn't even from Wisconsin. He's from Illinois. And after the shooting that night in the street, you may have seen the videos of it, um, he was not arrested that night and went back home to Illinois where he turned himself in. Well, now he's in Illinois, and the folks in Wisconsin obviously want him extradited. Hasn't been extradited yet. And there's a lot happening in this case. And Court TV crime and justice reporter Julie Janae has been on top of it and covering it for us. Julia, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Vinny. Glad to be here. Okay, let's start with Kyle Rittenhouse. He's charged in Wisconsin, and the charges in Wisconsin are murder, and they want to charge him as an adult, correct? He's 17, but they want to charge him as an adult. Right. First degree intentional homicide, two counts of that, but also he injured someone in that shooting and he had a dangerous weapon under the age of 18, which is against the law in Wisconsin. All right. So he's facing all those charges, but he's in Illinois. So what's his status right now? Where is he? And is he locked up? Is he in adult jail? Is he in juvie jail? What's going on? Right now, he is in juvie jail, as you call it, juvenile detention. He is behind bars. He has been ever since he turned himself in. The day after that video, everything that we've seen of the shooting, how it happened, how it unfolded, there are different angles. He then went home, went past the police, was not arrested, and he went back 30 miles across state lines to Antioch, Illinois. And the next morning after he went home, went to sleep, got up the next morning, turned himself in, 
and has been in de that detention center ever since. He is there being held as a juvenile. So I can't even find his information on the online docket because it is sealed. Right. Juvenile records. It's like family court. Everything is sealed. It's not it's not open um, like many of the records are. So this so now there's a hearing. Right. So Wisconsin wants him. Illinois wants to send him there, but his attorneys are fighting it. I want to play um, what John Pierce, one of his attorneys, said in the in the last hearing that they had in this case. This, again, is the attorney for the 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse. Well, Your, Your, Your Honor, it's no secret there, that, that, that this is a very unique, extraordinary situation. Um, there, there's a massive amount of video evidence that shows that there's you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is not a legitimate criminal prosecution, it is a political prosecution. There, there, there are serious issues with the extradition paperwork that, in fact, um, uh, bolster the suggestion that this is a political prosecution. These papers were were sent directly to the governor without us even getting a chance to to look at them in the first instance without any notice. There there is no reason to rush. There there is danger to this to this detainee. There there is a presidential candidate in the heat of arguably the most heated election perhaps ever, uh, certainly since 1860, that has inflamed the situation. And and we simply ask that. That, that this detainee's you know, due process rights be observed so we can challenge this in the proper way and ensure that this is a legitimate criminal prosecution um, and not something else. All right, Julia, what, do, what, what is John Pierce and Kyle Rittenhouse's defense team, what do they want to happen here? What, are they, what do they want the court to do? They want the court, first of all, to rule on a writ of habeas corpus that they have filed, challenging his arrest, challenging the fact that he's behind bars, the fact that he's a minor, they say also plays a role in this. And he's got a really savvy legal team. They brought up two separate issues that they have with this arrest. First, they say the extradition paperwork that was used to try and get him from Illinois back to Wisconsin is missing a signature and it doesn't meet the statutory requirements without that signature. And they say it involves some false statements that were obtained in order to get not only the arrest warrant, but the extradition document. So they say it fails on that. And also they say that Illinois shouldn't be able to be compelled to send a minor over state lines when his constitutional rights are being violated vis-a-vis -vis this warrant that they say is improper and they say Illinois should be an asylum state. So that right now is where it's still in a holding pattern. We, he's not out of Illinois yet. And it's been almost two months since the shooting happened. It's fascinating because in, in most of the cases we cover, Julia, even, even overseas, sometimes it becomes very easy to extradite someone within the United States. All the states have an Inter interstate agreements that they'll send uh, detainees, they'll send inmates back and forth. And it's and it's almost like a, pro, you know, it's just like a pro forma kind of thing. You just go into court and it happens. Most of the time they waive it, but they're going to fight. I think they're going to fight every bit of this case. Don't you get that feeling from this defense team that every issue will be fully litigated, that every they're not going to leave anything uh, unturned. They are not going to concede one inch in this case. If anything tells us that, it's that video that they have already put out. I mean, we're in TV and it takes us some time to put together a really good piece. And they put out a video for our listeners who are not familiar with it. It's a produced video that walks you play by play through what their defense is going to be. The self-defense that they are claiming is attributable to their client. They show you the angles and then they have these captions on the screen with 
all of these definitions of what's going on and why it absolves Kyle Rittenhouse and why he's a true American, why he's a patriot, why you should support him. And they say this is actually even going to help with him in his fundraising and his legal defense fund. So a defense team that is on it like that is already an indication that they are going to fight tooth and nail when it comes to this case. Absolutely. And and it's it's turning, you know, this case, when you look at the reaction on social media and other places, um, is, ve- is very political. And, and it seems like people are taking sides depending upon their politics rather than looking at the straight up facts and the law in the case. And Pierce even mentioned that in that statement. He was saying one of the, the candidates had weighed in on it. He was talking about, was he talking about Biden, right? He was talking about Biden, but President Trump has weighed in on this case as well and indicated that he's understanding that this was a case of self-defense, possibly. So you have the top people in the country weighing in on this 17-year-old's case. It has drawn a lot of political response. But if you think about it, one of the reasons he was there in Kenosha, the outrage over the shooting death of, or rather shooting injury of Jacob Blake, that was something that was already drawing political heat. And you could probably say one of the reasons he was even over there uh, was because of some of that drama that has come around that shooting and why he wanted to be there on the ground in Kenosha. So it's unavoidable in this case. Absolutely chaotic scene, by the way. And, and there's vi- there's so many videos. Um, do we have any idea if there are videos that have not been made public that may be part of the evidence in this case? Have you heard anything along those lines? Because I'm wondering. I mean, every, you look at these protests, everyone's got a video camera out. Everyone. Uh, some people post, some people live stream. Uh, but I'm wondering if there's anyone out there, like maybe a journalist who wasn't live streaming at the time, who maybe um, has video and and somehow, some way, we're going to end up seeing that and we'll get a clear picture of everything that happened. It's interesting you say that because there's something in the criminal complaint that I'm wondering if it's in a video we've already seen. I haven't noticed it, but it says that during the shooting of the alleged first victim. Rosenbaum. Right. Um, when he is on the ground, but before all of the shots that uh, someone is trying, or from the beginning of the shots, that someone is trying to render aid and that the defendant, Kyle Rittenhouse, appears to get a phone call or make a call on his cell phone. Then another male approaches, the defendant turns to run away, and then he can be heard saying on the phone, I just killed somebody. Is that in a video that you've seen, Vinny? Because I haven't noticed I haven't seen that one yet. And, and and there's so many of them. And and they're everyone's got a camera. It, it's completely changed our, our criminal justice system. But in this case in particular, it's going to be uh, interesting to see the way each side marshals those videos, puts them together to try to tell their story. And the, and the final part of it is, I don't know if Rittenhouse has to testify. If there's videos of everything, usually in a self-defense case, right, you've got to get up on the stand and tell your story. I don't know if he has to tell his story. Not if they show those videos and even show his state of mind, the interview that he did before the shootings when it was still daytime. There was a reporter that asked him why he was there and he gave his reasoning. So he had his medical pack on his hip and saying that he was there to render aid. He was there to protect buildings. And I think the defense could easily put that up as evidence and say this is this was his reason for being here. This was his state of mind at the time. He didn't go there to kill anyone. 
Wow. What a case. We're continuing to track it here on Court TV. Obviously, Julie Janae, Court TV crime and justice reporter on top of it. Thank you so much, Julia. Thanks, Vinny. All right. When we come back, I want to take a look at this case from the, the perspective of being a prosecutor, because that's what I am. And, and, I'll, and I'll be honest with you. I look at the facts. I look at the video and I just think it's a tough case. So I've got to bring in someone who can uh, try to uh, convince me that it's not a tough case. Monica Lindstrom will join us when we return. true crime series these are the true stories behind the trials renowned journalist ashley banfield takes you behind the scenes of the most compelling cases in history we focus on the detail we focus on the evidence and investigates the murders lies and alibis that led to justice in the courtroom this is the new chapter in true crime judgment with ashley banfield all new episodes sunday nights at eight on court tv So I'm a former prosecutor, and it's not an easy job being a prosecutor because you have the burden of proof beyond any and all reasonable doubt in every single case and every element of every crime that you charge. Now, taking a look at the charges of murder against Kyle Rittenhouse, I look at this and I say, wow, I don't think I'd want to be the prosecutor on this one. This is a tough one. This is a very tough one. This is a difficult one. I don't know if prosecutors can get it done. Again, they've got to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. So joining us, ladies and gentlemen, Monica Lindstrom, former prosecutor, great defense attorney, mediation expert, uh, a judge on the bench. She's a radio host. She does everything. And she's a mom. You could be on the Supreme Court, Monica. <laughs> no, thank you. Although I would love well, to Well, how many children do you smart? have? How many children? Well, definitely not seven. <laughs> okay, you don't have enough children. It's nope, been too easy for you. It's been too easy. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll tell you what's not easy is, is prosecuting this case against Kyle Rittenhouse. First of all, he's 17 years old, and it'll be, you know, a 17, 18-year-old inside the courtroom, okay? So mm -hmm. I think that's one obstacle that prosecutors have. A second obstacle is this is going to be a self-defense case. His attorneys have come out and said that already. OK, um, he may have to testify for that self-defense. He may not have to testify for the self-defense. The reason being all the videos and eyewitnesses to all everything that happened here. Um, so I don't know if there's going to be an opportunity to cross-examine him. And even if there is, that is a fine line to walk as a grown man or grown woman cross-examining a 17 slash maybe he's 18 at the time of the trial i don't know i think that's another challenge here but to me the real part of it is uh the self-defense aspect as you look at the videos and you take a look at the facts of this case so how would you like to do this monica because you believe you could prosecute this case and it's not as difficult as i'm saying it is yeah so i'll, I'll go ahead and start here uh, I'll, I'll throw are you down sure uh-huh. And uh, okay. it is, I will tell you, it's a difficult case. I'm not going to lie to you about that. It is difficult. But this is where you have good, smart attorneys that step in. This prosecutor hopefully is really intelligent because there is a line that you have to walk, like you said, Vinny. He has to, or the prosecutor has to really kind of balance the, the baby-faced look of the 17-year-old, but also show the jury that he knew exactly what he was doing. He went looking for trouble and he found it. And it's not going to be hard to show that. 
Okay, let's forget the fact that he's 17 years old, okay? Because when he stands there, if you're not looking at his face, the video clearly shows that he looks like he knows what he's doing. He stands there, he's got his gloves on, he's got the the long uh, the long rifle on him. He is like ready to go, right? Yeah, he's got his medical kit, whatever. But he is standing there, he knows how to hold the gun. He knows that someone asked him to turn around and protect their building. And let's not forget that he intentionally went to this area knowing that it had problems. Okay. So all of that is what the prosecutor can start with and saying, okay, this just isn't a little boy that got caught in the wrong situation. This is a gun toting police loving young man that is looking for trouble because he wanted to be uh, strong and show that he had power and he found trouble. And he found trouble in a big way. So I think when the prosecutor starts with that story and then they have the videos, (laughs) it's not going to be as difficult as you think. Well, here's the problem, though. Let's start. You know, there's three shootings. There's three victims, right? First one, Joseph Rosenbaum. He's 36 years old, first of all. And there is video of him from that entire night antagonizing people. So the defense is going to be able to show this jury exactly who Joseph Rosenbaum is. And, and the attitude that he was displaying before he got shot. And then they have to concede that it was Rosenbaum and others who were trying to take the gun away from Kyle Rittenhouse. They had him cornered. Then there's a gunshot that, ta- that, that is fired behind Kyle Rittenhouse before he ever fires his gun. So he hears gunshots, which he recognizes. Then he turns, and you've got this group of, of people, including Rosenbaum, who are trying to wrestle the gun away from him. They have already threatened him, and, and, and now they're trying to take his weapon. So now you've got a case where you as the prosecutor have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that his intention there was, oh, I'm just going to kill these people, I want to murder them, or am I concerned that someone just fired a gun behind me and now these people are coming after me after threatening me, trying to take my gun from me? Once you try to take someone's gun, that gun owner or that gun possessor I believe, has a good argument for self-defense to use that gun. Yeah, sure. Typically, that would be a good argument. And there's no doubt that the victims in this case are not, uh, you know, the altar boys, right? They were there at the protest. They were voicing their opinion. They were, you know, going after him, so to speak. Um, You can't get rid of those bad facts. And a good prosecutor will be able to know, I can't get rid of these bad facts. You don't have to like the victim. You don't have to like what the victim did, but he, they did not deserve to be shot and they did not deserve to be killed. Okay. Now, The prosecutor is going to focus on it doesn't matter if they antagonized him. What matters is he showed up, he left his home, he went to another state to come to a place that's already in turmoil with a big gun with the intent to cause a problem, to patrol, to protect, to play cops to play vigilante, right? Just like George Zimmerman used to do way back in the day, right? He did this on purpose. So it doesn't necessarily matter what the victims were doing, right? Now, the victims are trying to take the gun away from him. Well, heck yeah, wouldn't you? I mean, you've got this 17-year-old waving a gun and acting like he's hot stuff. I would want to try to protect myself and get the gun away from him too. So now, that being said, I think first-degree intentional homicide is tough. 
tough. I don't think he went there, like you said, with a plan to murder. But the reckless homicide, I think, is a no-brainer because the way he acted, taking a gun to a protest like that, there's no doubt he was very reckless. He was running. He was acting like he was a big guy on campus. Yeah, no problem with the reckless homicide. I have to give it to you, Vinny. little tougher for well, the here, intentional. Let's, here, okay, so now let's get to the next victim because you're saying he's acting like the big man on campus. He's run. Mm-hmm. He's literally running away from a mob that is chasing him, and there's video of yeah, this, and it's super clear. After he tried to be the big man on campus. Okay, after the first shooting, now he is. He is. He tries to render aid, uh, but he is then surrounded by more people. He's in fear of his own safety, so he is now retreating and running away, and literally running from a mob. As he's running down the street away from a mob, he gets smacked in the head by one person, then trips and falls on the ground as the oh, mob is descending wasn't upon him. He was smacked in the head. He yes, he smacked was. In the head. His, his hat flew off. How do you know he was actually smacked in the head? I, well, I, I, we'll, let the, we'll let the jury decide as they look at the video that I saw. <laughs> I don't know which one you were watching. The one I was watching got hit in the head. Then he, he falls in the street, and this is crystal clear. As he falls, now the mob is descending upon him, and mm-hmm. the second victim, Anthony Huber, uh, smacks him in the head with his skateboard and then goes yep. for his gun. Mm-hmm. Smacks him in the head with his skateboard and goes for his gun. Again, you're going to try to, after you've assaulted someone, now you're trying to wrestle his gun away. I, I don't see how it's not a reasonable argument to say, self-defense there and again the defense doesn't have to prove self-defense it just has to be a reasonable alternative Mm -hmm. it's the prosecution has to prove that it wasn't self-defense and that's where i see the real challenges especially with victim number two here i agree with you that there is definitely a challenge there but i think it's a challenge that the prosecutor can get over if the prosecutor is very careful about the jurors that get on that jury and does a great job setting up the theme and the theory of the case that here was a person that was trying to act tougher than what he was, taking a gun to a fight, knowing full well that he was being reckless and he intended to cause some problems or in his mind protect people. But again, he's not a police officer. So if you get the right people in the, on that jury, Vinny, I think they're going to look at that whole skateboard incident and this guy, the victim trying to take the gun and say, you know what? The defendant got what he deserved, and he did not have the right to turn around and do the entire sequence of what happened. All right. You you talked about bringing a gun. Victim number three has a gun and brandishes a gun and points the gun at him. (laughs) So if someone's pointing a gun at you, I think you're allowed to use your gun on them. And this But uh, who was the aggressor? Arguably, the prosecutor is going to argue that it was Rittenhouse that was the aggressor. He's the one that brought the big gun to the fight from a whole other state. The the size. They're not conceding that he brought the gun from Illinois. Well, it was in his hand. So whether it was in his hand in Wisconsin or not. Right. Well, fine. Wisconsin. The third victim, though, from another state. The third victim goes towards Rittenhouse. Okay, he. He lunges towards Rittenhouse and brandishes the weapon. I I think that's another tough one. Now, this victim, thankfully, survives, so he's going to testify about it, but that means he's got to be cross-examined. Why did you have the gun? Were you reaching for his gun? Why were you reaching for his gun? Why were you going after him? Why were you chasing him? I mean, to me, those are more... You've got this victim now being able to use self-defense because here's this 
this 17-year-old, right, this young man that came from another state and had a gun somehow miraculously, not from his state, from somebody else, acting like he was the cop, brandishing it, using the big word that you have there, the big law enforcement word, you know, showing it around. And uh, now it's this guy, this victim that has the right to show the gun and to say, hey, knock it off, right? And then he ends up getting shot. I don't know, Vinny. I think it's a tough case, but I think the prosecutor has enough as long as they get the right jury jury in those seats. Aha! Aha! Monica Lindstrom, great to have you here, but you mentioned the jury. Um, We're going to talk about that in just a second, but I want to thank you for coming on the program. And, And I think we can agree that the murder charges, so this means I win, folks, the murder charges are going to be very difficult. <laughs> Correct? Agree? You know, Vinny, you're, you're going Vinny, reckless. it will be very difficult. Well, you got to let me speak. Yes, I'd say reckless, and I'll say sometimes I have to let you win some battles so that I can win the war. <laughs> All right. Monica Lindstrom, thank you so much. When we come back, Monica made a great point. You know, she almost stole my thunder there. There is one other huge factor that is an obstacle for prosecutors in this case, and it starts with the J. It starts with the J. It's the J word. We're going to talk about that when we come back. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. So there is one more reason why the prosecution of Kyle Rittenhouse is going to be difficult. And we've sort of been dancing around it here throughout this podcast. And, and that is the politics of this case. Okay, the politics of the case and the way it is broken down, where you've got one presidential candidate looking at it one way, another one looking at it a different way. And the people who support those those uh, different candidates looking at it differently. And, And that's a problem for prosecutors. And let me tell you why, because if if that's the perspective and that's the way people see it, that's a split. okay, and that's a split, you know, basically down the middle of our nation, and basically down the middle of Wisconsin, okay? So you're going to have a jury of 12, and arguably half the people will see it one way, half the people will see it another way, based upon their politics. Now, I know there's a jury selection process, there's voir dire, but the problem is you can't kick everyone off the jury, right? At some point... You're going to end up with some jurors who kind of see it one way and some jurors who kind of see it another way. And the reason it's a problem for prosecutors and not the defense is that prosecutors are the ones who have to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt to all 12 jurors. The only way you get a conviction is by convincing all 12 of the jurors. Anytime a jury comes back and it's, 11-1, 10-2, 9-3, that's a win for the defense. It's a win for the defense because the defendant has not been convicted of the crime. So this is just another reason why it's so tough to be a prosecutor. The only way you win the case is by convincing all 12. The defense can win the case by convincing one, just one. And in a case like this that is breaking down on, on, on political leanings, 
think about it. And even if you get jurors who say, I can be fair and impartial, base it on, on, on the facts of the case, it's the way you see the world. It's not going to be lost on this jury that there was a protest in Kenosha and the protesters were anti-police and the protesters uh, may have engaged in some rioting and the protesters may have destroyed some businesses and the protesters were supporting Jacob Blake. And then you've got it's not going to be lost on the jury that Kyle Rittenhouse supports police, that Kyle Rittenhouse uh, said he was going there to protect businesses that Kyle Rittenhouse believes in the Second Amendment. And that's all politics. All of that is the, the politics of the way we're seeing the situation in the world right now. And if you end up with just one juror who was leaning one way, who sees the case through that, through that filter, you can't get a conviction. They're going to say, nope, nope, nope. Nope. Self-defense, Second Amendment. Nope. Come on. Can't do it. That's why it's such a challenge here. That's why I think it's a hard case, a difficult case. And, and maybe, as Monica was saying, maybe this, it ends up somewhere else other than first-degree murder. And when you have jurors that can't agree, one of two things can happen. One is you get a hung jury and you come back, you got to do the trial again. The other thing that can happen is that jurors can go back and forth and negotiate amongst themselves. And if sometimes there are lesser included charges, so you have not guilty on one end, you have first-degree murder on the other end, but in the middle you've got, you know, reckless homicide, which is, it's not murder, it's not intentional, but it's, it's something that is not not guilty, but it's something much less than intentional killing of another human being. This premeditated, this, you, this I intended, I wanted to take a life. I wanted to take it. That's why I was there. That was my, my mindset versus maybe I shouldn't have brought a gun. Maybe I was being a little careless. Maybe I was being a little reckless, and it happened, right? So that's why for prosecutors, and when I say it's a challenge, I've always talked about what they're charging, what they really believe it is. And prosecutors should only charge what they really believe happened here. You don't. You, you never bring charges that you don't believe you can prove and that you personally do not believe in. Okay? So prosecutors in Wisconsin believe they can prove first-degree murder, and they believe this is first-degree murder. So when I say this is a tough case, that's what I'm talking about. Now, could something less uh, happen here? Perhaps. But the, the, the challenge here, in a case that has turned so political, in a country that is so divided, in a state like Wisconsin that is so divided. And remember, if this case ends up in Wisconsin, which I think it will at some point, it may not be heard in Kenosha. It may be heard somewhere else. And, and think about the whole jury process here in, in selecting this jury and going through their social media posts and what did they say about this? What did they say about that? And, you know, who, who, are, they, who are they leaning for, you know, for president? Who are they, what are they posting politically? The attorneys on both sides are going to be all in that. And at the end of the day, you can't get people, people will not be kicked off the jury merely because they voted one way or another, or they see the world one way or another. The only way they get bounced by the judge is if they can't be fair and impartial, if they can't put aside any preconceived opinions that they have about the evidence or the case, put them aside and base their verdict solely on the evidence presented in the courtroom. So this is a challenge above challenge. I'm not saying it can't be done, 
but it's going to take a really good prosecutor. It's going to take some incredible arguments. It's going to take uh, some amazing examination of witnesses and cross-examination of witnesses, and you're going against a defense team uh, that, as we've been saying, is um, aggressive to say the least. They are not going to give an inch. They are going to press, press, press. So we shall see. Again, this is a case we will continue to track, continue to cover on Court TV, which is always, folks, your front row seat to justice. It's not just a podcast. It is a website, CourtTV.com, where we'll have lots of articles about uh, and, and postings about this story and other stories. Check the show notes. We have incredible links there as well. And, of course, you can watch Court TV each and every day if you have a digital antenna and you don't have Court TV on it, if you can't find it, rescan that digital antenna, and, and chances are um, our signal will be there for you. So you can watch these trials and watch me every night from 8 to 11. I'm Vinny Politan. Thanks so much for listening. Have a fantastic week. And as always, don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.